Hello, this is Digital Accessibility, the people behind the progress. I'm Joe Walensky, the creator and host of this series. And as an accessibility professional myself, I find it very interesting as to how others have found their way into this profession. So let's meet one of those people right now and hear about their journey. All right, well, here we go with another episode where I have the opportunity to talk with another accessibility practitioner. And today I'm pleased to be visiting with Tolu Adebita. Hello, Tolu, how are you today? Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, really good. Uh, I'm speaking from my home office on Vashon Island, which is near Blink's Seattle headquarters. Uh, where are you talking to us from? Um, I'm talking to you from Toronto, Canada, on the East Coast. Well, uh, thanks for uh, participating in this. Uh, I think we've we've both been uh, affected a little bit, where our voices are a little bit scratchy. So we'll try to uh, do the best uh, that we can. But uh, thanks for being part of this. And uh, um, I hadn't met you before, so this is a great uh, you know opportunity for me to learn more about you. And a good place to start is if you could talk a little bit about your current work. Yeah, absolutely. I'm super excited to be chatting with you today. So um, right now, my current work looks like working on web accessibility um, as a product slash UX designer. Um, there are a lot of different things involved. Um, sometimes I'm looking at accessibility issues in apps and helping people figure out how to fix them, whether that's like design or development wise. Sometimes we're trying to figure out the best way to educate um, different disciplines on web accessibility. Sometimes it looks like coming up with plans to create new experiences with accessibility in mind. So there are kind of a few different um, aspects uh, things things are really different day to day, but broadly, just trying to figure out the most scalable way to make sure that things are accessible. And uh, you know, if you're able to talk about it, how like how is your your team uh, set up, or kind of how do you fit in with other other uh, professionals in the organization? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've worked at a few different orgs that have um, that have like different sorts of products, whether that's like web, mobile. Um, and I've worked on accessibility in varying capacities over the years, but this is actually the first time I've worked um, with a dedicated accessibility team that kind of stretches across the organization to support things, both on the website of things like mobile, whether that's iOS or Android, as well as like even hardware things. So um, it, it's pretty exciting to get to uh, think about accessibility through all those different lenses. It's also pretty cool to be thinking about accessibility when it comes to like uh, virtual and interactive experiences there's I, I feel like there's still a lot um a lot to think of and a long way to go in it when it comes to making sure those platforms are accessible so yeah i'm pretty excited to be part of like a larger dedicated team that that focuses on on all aspects of this sort of thing well, I, I definitely want to uh maybe learn a little bit more about some of those emerging technologies uh that you're talking about but one of the things that we always do in this program is find out how people made their way to uh, the accessibility profession so um, kind of how did it start with you in terms of becoming aware of accessibility uh, for your lived life your work life and and then found your way into doing this as part of your work 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I started out as a front end developer and I actually started by working on fixing accessibility issues. Um, not too long after I started um, one of my first software jobs, I had a mentor on the team. Her name is Allison Walden, who was doing a lot of web accessibility work and was looking for people who were interested. I'm like, oh, that sounds really cool. And um, the more I learned about it, the more the more I understood how important it was. It's one of those things that I feel like uh, once you have an understanding of, it completely changes the way you see the world and the lens through which you see things. Um, as someone that considers myself really passionate about social justice and human rights, it feels like a really logical extension uh, of that work. So um, it, it definitely matters a lot to me. And um, I'm really excited to, that I work in a field where I get to explore it every single day. Um, starting from the, the code side of things is a little bit different than starting from the design side of things, but I do enjoy the opportunity to shift things left and, and start with accessibility conversations and considerations earlier in the process um, before things are shipped and it gets a little bit, a lot harder to make them accessible. Well, uh, so, uh, you know, you know, starting out as a developer, uh, you know, was, was that just something that you'd uh, always had an interest in? Um, you know, how did you come around to that? And then kind of what were some of the the uh, first activities that uh, uh, caused you to start thinking about accessibility? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I studied psychology during my undergrad, but um, towards the end, I was like, oh, I don't know what to do next. And um, I, I've heard of this framework of kind of thinking of what kind of careers people want to explore. And the way it was posed to me was like, think back to, to what you studied when you were younger and like what brought you the most joy. And when I was thinking about that, I thought about um, a course I took on web design and development in high school. And uh, it was like with Dreamweaver, we were doing like little things with like websites, animations. And I thought that was so much fun. So I thought it would be um, a cool, thing to explore. I actually had no idea what UX was when I was um, first starting out as a developer. So maybe if I knew what UX was, I would have been interested in that. But um, I knew that making websites was a thing. So it's it seemed like a fun thing to do. And then um, as someone who cares a lot about, I mean, like psychology, like human interaction with interfaces, computers, it felt like a really logical step to think more and more about web accessibility in that in that work. Well, I'd, a lot of us, uh, as we got involved with accessibility, uh, were suddenly kind of overwhelmed with, uh, you know, all the things that we needed to learn and trying to figure out where to learn those things. Uh, there, it's, uh, you know, he has, hasn't been the case up until more recently that there's uh, foundational programs uh, to, to teach about accessibility. So how was it for you? How were you able to um, identify the things that you had to learn about and then just uh, start building your education? Yeah, that's a really good question. I do definitely remember when I was first starting out, it definitely felt very overwhelming. Like there are those automated tools that only capture like a really small fraction of web accessibility problems. Those like um, those Chrome plugins, for example. So starting there was helpful because those things, those tools that like call out things helped me get more familiar. But eventually it was just using websites because uh, at first we were fixing issues on existing websites and apps. So trying to tap through the website with the keyboard, for example, almost always revealed a ton of issues. Trying to use screen readers or other forms of assistive technology on the experiences made it really obvious what was broken. So starting to use those things and see what was broken in the experience it started to make more and more sense but 
it definitely is something that I feel like you you spend a lot of time doing before it fully clicks and sinks in. Uh, definitely felt really overwhelming at first, but I think the longer you, you do it, the more sense it makes. Though definitely, I feel like every week I learn something completely new. There's so many, there's such a huge spectrum of like human experience when it comes to interacting with interfaces. So I'm constantly learning new things. I think um, being open to learning new things and just knowing that I don't know everything has made me feel um, a lot more, I guess, relaxed about everything. Um, I, I know I'm never going to know everything. And so that kind of uh, like lessens the pressure, if that makes sense. And so uh, then you know, you've had a lot of experience with a lot of different uh, organizations, uh, maybe just generally how have, uh, what kind of differences have you seen in terms of uh, support for accessibility, how it's enabled in those organizations? Uh, um, I, I think that the story is different for, from, for everyone, but it's always, uh, I think, interesting to kind of hear how that, that journey was. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, definitely something I've thought a lot about. Um, back in my auditing days where I used to like kind of move from um, project to project doing web accessibility audits, there was such a wide range of, of products from um, from automotive websites to e-commerce to, to, to general like technology websites. But what really stood out is that a lot of people um, see accessibility as just like a checkbox or even just like a form of technology, but really trying to humanize it and explain why it's important. The experiences that accessibility supports, um, I think, was a, was a really good way to get people on board and get them excited. So even after I was done auditing, I knew that they would be interested themselves in maintaining a level of web accessibility. Um, Increasingly, towards the end of my time doing audits, um, I was getting clients, um, groups coming because they had been sued or they were afraid of being sued. I think in the ideal situation, people are not implementing web accessibility practices because they're getting sued for them. But honestly, if that's what it takes um, to, to make sure that things are accessible, that, that's, that's fine with me. It's a human right. So ultimately, at the end of the day, it's not a nice to have or it's not something that we like politely request. It, it really does have to be done. And so I think that the government stepping in and making sure that this is more regulated is super, super important. Um, there were also, I think, industries where you traditionally don't think of people with disabilities maybe being very visible in. I remember working with automotive clients, there was a general feeling that like, well, people with disabilities don't need to see our website. Why do we need to make it accessible? But I, I think that's exactly the, the kind of attitude that like oversight and laws um, helps to manage. And yeah, uh, I really enjoyed my time doing web accessibility audits. I learned like a ton of stuff, but there, there really was like a huge range of, of issues that we'd see um, from audit to audit. And uh, I believe you mentioned uh, uh, a shift left philosophy of, of getting uh, accessibility involved in, in the design uh, process uh, uh, much earlier. So uh, how, how did that uh uh, take place for you? What were your experiences with respect to that as opposed to trying to fix things uh, after the most of the code has been put together? Yeah, um, trying to fix accessibility issues as a developer, it became increasingly obvious that half of the issues that we were fixing would have been 
a non-issue if it had been addressed in the design phase of things. Um, little fixes that we could make at the dev end of things are a lot more costly and take a lot more time than if we just tweaked the design before we started. Um, and even as a developer, I realized a lot of the time when you're fixing these web accessibility issues, they rarely resulted in visual changes to the website, which I think says a lot about the nature of web accessibility. There's so much flexibility in there to fixing things. Um, I think it's I think it's just super important for designers to take ownership and realize that if we're designing user experiences, and we're designing experiences for all users, whether dis they're disabled or not. We're designing experiences for assistive technology. We're designing a good screen reader experience, a good Braille experience. So it just um, it makes sense. And it's a lot less frustrating if we fix those things before we get to development. Um, retrofitting is a lot more expensive than just building the right thing in the first place. And uh, in your experience uh, from from the design side, but also understanding the developer side, um, what do you what do you think is the key to being able to communicate the accessibility that has been considered as part of the design to make sure that it's uh, you know executed uh, properly in the final product? Yeah, um, I remember when I first started in the. Um in the development community, it was really common to have this working style where a designer somewhere like who you never saw would design something, throw it to you over the fence and then you developed it. But um, it, it became really obvious that working in that way was not at all helpful in trying to make sure that we were like, uh, we were maintaining whatever sort of experience the designer had in mind. I would always have questions about things. This page has a really huge menu. Do we want to have a skip link in here? Or do we want to do something else to bypass this? But you need to have those conversations. So I think it's, it's really important to have um, communication openly between designers and developers. There should never be like a throw over the wall process. It should always be communication to make sure that we're thinking about the experience, but then also implementing it in the right way. I also think having notes during handoff to like draw attention to little details of the experience that aren't always visible on the screen is, is really important, but that's definitely been um, a learning process. Uh, different teams work differently together, and there are so many little nuances that come up when you're designing something. You really do have to be, I think, in constant conversation about the best way to, to execute things. Well, uh, um, now that, uh, so you've had all this experience in accessibility, uh, kind of looking forward into the future, are there any certain things that uh, you're passionate uh, or excited about uh, working on or investigating further? And, and then uh, just another uh, consideration, are there certain things uh, you've seen in the accessibility profession where you think maybe it it still requires uh, maybe more attention than it has up until now. Yeah, I can think of two things that immediately come to mind. One, um, looking at uh, like virtual and artificial reality spaces, I think there's so much opportunity there. It really is a new frontier. It's kind of like the Wild West when it comes to um, when it comes to like virtual experiences. So I think there's still a lot for us to learn and a lot for us to figure out when it comes to making those experiences accessible. There's not really a list of guidelines we can look to yet for those things. So uh, definitely still still a lot to to think about in that space. Um, another thing that I've been thinking a lot about is intersectionality when it comes to accessibility. I think it's really, really common for people in the accessibility community to think of 
people who we are creating things for as kind of fitting in like one box like someone has this disability or that disability and that is kind of all we consider when designing their experiences but increasingly I'm I'm finding it really important to point out like the intersections of people's identities right designing something that works well for a white man does not always mean something that will work well for a black man or a black woman um something I can think of off the top of my head is those hair dry those dryers you might see in washrooms in public when those were designed they were designed um, with kind of universal design principles making sure it works for everyone you shouldn't have to touch the knob um, whether that's because it's dirty or because you don't have really great mobility in your hands but those were only really tested with people that looked a certain way. And so in the real world, that looks like if you stick your hands under a dryer or a, or, um, a faucet with certain centers, if you have darker skin, it doesn't always work for you, um, which is which is really frustrating. So that's like a, that's a situation in which the intention behind the design was good. It certainly is accommodating to large groups of people, but because only probably a limited number of people tested it, it didn't work for people of varying intersecting identities. So that's increasingly something that I think is important. Um, I've had conversations about things like alternative text attributes or people describing themselves when it comes to like a conference or a meeting or something. And there definitely is a group of people who that does not appeal to, it's not important to them. But to me, that says that maybe one, these experiences are already kind of catering to their needs. And two, maybe they're part of a more dominant social group that gets to have more say in how we make these experiences. But if one small group needs an accommodation that one larger group doesn't, in this case, um, describing your appearance, then I think by not doing it at all, you're leaving out that group of people who have who have that need. And to me, that's at the heart of accessibility. Like we need to accommodate people, meet them where they are and believe them when they say that they need something. So when I talk about these things, I feel like it's contextually relevant to say that I'm a black woman and I find I have these experiences often in the accessibility community. There definitely are people who will say it's absolutely irrelevant that I'm black and that I'm describing it. But um, I, I do think it's really important. And I've, I've frequently talked to people of color, black people um, in the accessibility or disability community who do say that they need this and who do say it's valuable to them. So I think like keeping the same mindset um, when it comes to requests from groups of people, which may not be the mainstream perspective, is, is really important. So I'd really like to see that more in the future. Is the web accessibility community realizing that there are intersections of identity and we're not just creating for a disabled person who looks one way or experiences in one way? That was a really long tangent, but um, it's something I'm, I'm really passionate about and really excited to talk more about when it comes to accessibility. Well, yeah, I appreciate all your uh, comments and, and the issue of intersectionality that you, you brought up. Definitely gives me a lot of things uh, yeah, to think about, uh, especially since you brought it up with respect to our conversation about accessibility, because uh, um, that definitely is an angle that, you know, whereas I, you know, these are issues uh, that, you know, we've discussed um, how it applies to accessibility, I think is, you know, is a really uh, uh, innovative way to think about that. Uh, it, you, I think you mentioned that then that conversation needs to happen as to how this applies to accessibility. Um, have you had any thoughts or experiences of of how to bring that into the 
conversation when you're working on accessibility and you want to, uh, you know, let uh, kind of bring about this point of view? Yeah. So um, I think in this day and age, in this political climate, it is like a very sensitive topic for some people and understandably so. Some people don't have a lot of lived experience or a lens with which to understand this. But one really kind of helpful example of conversation that I think um, helps kind of frame it is um, Hibben Grima, who wrote um, Hibben, the first deafblind woman to graduate from Harvard Law. Um, on her social media, she frequently talks about when she meets other people who are blind or other people who are deafblind, they frequently assume that she is a white woman. And she wanted to get to the heart of that issue. Like, why do people always think I'm a white woman? But she realized that oftentimes when it comes to things like described video, alternative text attributes, conferences, meetings, people actually don't often or haven't often described what people look like physically, whether that's their race, skin color. And it kind of, in our society, leads to people thinking of default as the kind of dominant social group or the largest populace in the country, which in our, an American or Canadian context happens to be white people. So because especially people who are blind um, don't often hear descriptors that include race or haven't traditionally, it's very easy to assume that everyone is is white. And of course, um, that's because we don't we don't include that in our descriptions, but we are really shaping reality, like through things like alternative text or descriptions. And if we don't include facts like that, we're excluding blind people from that conversation. Um, another kind of parallel I draw really often is from my own childhood. I used to read a lot, um, went to the school library, whatever I could. And I was in middle school the first time I ever read a book with a Black main character. I remember standing there being like, oh my God, they write books about Black people. I had just assumed that people only wrote books about white people. Like if I only read books with white main characters or characters who are never described, of course I assume that they're white. Like if I am reading Harry Potter, Hermione has um, mousy brown hair. I just assume that she's white because that's what I see in the media. That's what I see at school. That's what I see in government. So it's, it's a very logical thought that we're just representing white people. So I'm um, reading that book. I was like, oh my gosh, like I, I wanted to be a writer at one point. I guess I can write about black people. I, it never occurred to me to even write about, about black people. So I think when we are not having honest conversations about things like race, um, we are leaving people out of the conversation, but also crafting a reality that doesn't exist, um, especially to blind people who rely on designers designing this experience to convey to them the meaning of, of things like um, pictures that we include or what scenes look like in, in movies. The, uh, I appreciate you uh, providing all the detail about that. Uh, I, I know I, I, I go to a lot of uh, conferences, uh, probably most of them are more accessibility oriented. In, in those events, there has been a, a trend of of uh, speakers, you know, describing uh, their attributes. So they, you know, that's positive. But of course, that is within that that kind of silo of people who already are you know, are thinking about uh, 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 people who are blind that may be processing uh, that information. But more broadly, uh, that doesn't happen. So. Uh, yeah, I think it's these are uh, good things for us to continue to uh, have in our conversation much, you know, beyond uh, the accessibility piece. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It really hurts my heart sometimes when we hear conversations like this kind of being silenced. But again, like like you're saying, I think it's at the heart of 
the accessibility kind of ethos, like why we even do this work to listen to people with different experiences and include them. So it's exciting to hear that like at conferences, people are given the opportunity, the option, because not everyone wants to do it and that's fine, but being given the option, I think is a really powerful thing. And it's really awesome that we're having that conversation. Well, I, I, yeah, one of the other items that you mentioned, uh, in addition uh, to the intersectionality, was uh, the um, uh, AR VR technology opportunities. Uh, you know, that's something that I, I'm also uh, interested in. And I agree, there's a, a lot of uh, need and opportunity to consider uh, accessibility for this. But uh, have there been any certain uh, areas where you've thought about, you know, solutions or big gaps or, you know, places that you're interested in and in trying to work on? Yeah, I think um, a lot of it comes down to like testing these technologies with people with disabilities. I remember a few years ago, the first time I tried on a VR headset, I have glasses with a really strong prescription, like I can't see a thing without them. But in order for the headset to fit, I had to take off my glasses. And if I take off my glasses and I'm looking into a VR headset, I can't see anything. I can't interact. I, I, I can't use that technology if it doesn't accommodate wearing glasses. And I think um, at that point, I don't think they had any sort of like thing that you could use to adapt glasses. If you had glasses, you probably just couldn't use the headset. But nowadays I know that they have adapters that actually make it fit better for people with, with glasses. But that probably um, came to mind because they started testing with people with glasses. If they had never included people with glasses in that testing, they probably wouldn't have known or wouldn't have cared to fix the issue. So I think similarly making sure that we're including people with disabilities in these experiences, especially early on, will give us the opportunity to understand how we need to shape these experiences to accommodate the most people. And I'm excited to see that in this in this world because there's just so much opportunity and exciting cool stuff that can happen. Yeah, I agree that this can be a fun, uh, exciting uh, area to uh, get involved with. Uh, well, uh, it, it's been a pleasure uh, chatting with you, Tolo, about this. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to be part of this program, and uh, you know, hopefully, we'll uh, maybe meet up at a physical event sometime. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for um, starting some really awesome conversations. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks. Have a good one. Hi, I'm Joe Walensky, and as host of the Digital Accessibility Program, I like to keep the focus on our amazing guests. But I'm always excited about my role as Accessibility Director at Blink the producer of this program, and I'd like to share that with you. Blink is the world's leader in evidence-driven design, and we work with a wide variety of clients. Founded in Seattle, we also have offices in Boston, New York, Austin, San Diego, and San Francisco. Our stated mission is to make technology human. Embracing inclusive design and accessibility brings all of us closer to that mission. We bring accessibility in every one of our projects. Our philosophy is that each of our practitioners should understand how accessibility applies to their own work. Accessibility is not a separate department or activity for us. Our researchers, designers, and developers all employ accessibility principles at every stage. If you have a need for research and design services, Blink is a partner with a full-time commitment to making your product or service accessible 
and a great experience for all of your customers. Some of the specific areas where we can help, using research to better understand the needs of your customers with disabilities, innovating to make sure your accessibility is the best in class design, we can move existing designs to development in a sprint. And maybe most importantly, we provide a turnkey transformation to an accessible site or app. Of course, compliance status is something that we always include as part of the service. If any of this is of interest, please get in touch with me directly at joe at blinkux.com. That's J-O-E at B-L-I-N-K-U-X.com. Thank you. And please take a moment to rate our program in whatever app you use.